Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here is your 30-second summary. When we talk about the Gilded Age, it's usually about the upper crust, the big money Newport set. But there were a group of women who were trailblazing at the same time as Mrs. Astor's 400 or having a ball in New York. When you think about women of the Wild West, you think of Annie Oakley, Belle Starr, Calamity Jane. But the Harvey girls were as much a part of the Gilded Age in the Wild West as those women, all while wearing starched white pinafores, puffy black sleeve dresses, and bows in their hair. The end. Let's talk about Fred Harvey and the Harvey Girls. But first, let's drop them into history. In 1883, Ladies' Home Journal was first published. The International Colonial and Export Exposition, otherwise known as the Amsterdam World's Fair, was held. Passengers could first travel in style via train, ferry, another train, and a carriage on the Orient Express from Paris to Constantinople, not Istanbul. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show premiered. Treasure Island was first published and the Brooklyn Bridge opened. The vacant slash engaged toilet stall lock and the first shoe manufacturing machine were patented. Douglas Fairbanks, Rube Goldberg, and Coco Chanel were born. Lydia Pinkham and Sojourner Truth died. And in 1883, Fred Harvey began employing only women waitstaff in his growing chain of restaurants. It seems amazing to me that there for hundreds of years is not a thing, but the raw material of a thing. And then there's some tipping point that happens and then some kind of revolution that happens all over the world. And that's what happened with rail travel. Since at least the 1500s, miners had used carts on rails to haul their heavy raw material out of their mines. And it was a natural progression. You had carts and then some smooth way for them to roll so they don't tip over. And then you put rails on and shaped wheels to prevent them from jumping off the track. All horse and mule drawn. Surely we can adapt this for people transport. But shockingly, it didn't happen until 1807. Like, what on earth was the delay? Um, you know, people didn't think it was very safe. But these trains, we'll put them in quotes, were all horse-drawn, poor horses. Poor horses. These are very, mm-hmm. very heavy vehicles. It wasn't until the cunning and foolhardy artificers of the world spent a couple of decades blowing themselves up with steam engines that they were considered <laughs> reliable enough to risk carrying a passenger car behind them. In 1825, the very first 300 intrepid passengers boarded the train, locomotion number one. The railway coach was called the experiment. No, thank you. I'm at home. (laughs) I'm not even going to go to watch that one drive off. During the eight and a half mile trip, a wagon lost a wheel, the engine broke down, and one guy fell off and had his foot crushed. Mm -hmm. It took two and a half hours there. This is an eight and a half mile trip. Remember, it took three hours back and it was considered a roaring success. Toasts were made. Thousands cheered. Uh, Probably not that one guy with his foot. I will tell you, he's probably not cheering. No. But honestly, the wheels kept breaking and engines kept exploding for quite a few years. And passengers were again pulled on the railway track and in the car called the experiment, but by horses. Let's just... Err on the side of caution, shall we? (laughs) 
America had its own thrill ride. I don't know how to say it. Mosh Chunk Coal Railroad was built to haul coal up a hill with this machinery that prevented it from going back down the hill. A ratchet that went click, 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 click. Sounds familiar. And then it would let gravity take the cars back down. Woo! People were so excited (laughs) that they lined up to ride this thing, which was confusing for the coal company for a very brief period of time until they decided, yes, we're going to print tickets. We're just going (laughs) to... Fair enough. (laughs) The market has spoken. We're going to do this. It's considered the first roller coaster. I don't think it's going to get you to grandma's, certainly, and I don't think it would get any modern roller coaster awards. It was the 1830s, you know, and it was that decade all over the world that seemed to be just that tipping point that I talked about earlier. Something mm-hmm. happened all over the world that made it possible and reliable and medium safe to be a person with a suitcase or a valise that got on a train and decided to go someplace. I'm just imagining that tick, 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 tick up that hill, that first hill, and then it hit that the crest, and then railroads began popping up everywhere. (laughs) And the eastern seaboard, there was 3,000 miles of train track. Cotton was going from the south up to manufacturing and shipping facilities in the north, all based on what I'm considering the theory that if you build it, they will monetize. So all these railroad barons were like, hey, this is cool. Let's get all this stuff where we need it to go. And people were starting to ride on these trains. The development was kind of, would you say, higgledy-piggledy? Is that the first time I've ever said that out loud? Maybe. It's like little companies with short routes all over the place. Okay, have you ever been on a road trip and it's raining and you see the water droplets on the window and they're all by themselves? Until suddenly, like gravity or wind or a bug or something gets hold of them and they start to meet up. It's like magnetism or fate. They they just make bigger and bigger pools and there's fewer and fewer of them. And that's the short history of railroads. I mean, I joke, but that's the way it happened. Sometimes it took gun battles or legal battles or honestly a stroke of luck or in some cases a stroke of genius to come out on top. It's kind of amazing how it happened. Like once that ball started rolling, it just started to go really fast. This decade, the 1830s, was the source also of one of the men whose own stroke of genius changed the railroad industry forever. Frederick Henry Harvey was born on June 27, 1835 in London, England. He was the eldest of three children of Charles and Anne Harvey. Not a lot is really known about his early years. We know he had two younger sisters that his father was a tailor by trade and a pauper by income, and that Mama liked to disappear quite often. He spent a lot of time living with his aunt, who had a bit of money, which I'm guessing is how he was exposed to those finer things in life. But what we do know is that he left as a teenager to go to the United States. A lot of sources will tell you it was age 15, but the side that we're airing on is that it was older, that he was 17. It was 1853. Most likely he was trying to avoid military service in England. Great Britain was getting involved in all kinds of conflicts around the world. 
He hopped on a boat in the early summer and disembarked in New York City with two pounds in his pocket. Fred Harvey started work at a restaurant across from the Washington Market, which how am I going to describe this? It's like a giant food expo that used to sit on the site that was later cleared for the World Trade Center. So if you are a denizen of New York City, you know exactly where that was. This restaurant called Smith and McNell's served a thousand people. It was open 24 hours a day. It took up a whole city block and it was just fast paced, well-priced food in good quantities. They had a very high standard of service because if you think about if you're this restaurant owner, your clientele is largely in the biz. I mean, you have produce dealers, you have farmers, you have restaurant and hotel procurement people. And and you got to be on your toes, you know. You can't, these are the people that will mm-hmm. know if you slack off or if you cheat them or trick them. The reputation of this restaurant was such that a recommendation from the owners here was sort of equivalent status of of maybe Delmonico's, which we talked about during our Gilded Age Heiress podcast. That's a fancy establishment, and and this place did have a fancy room, you know, upstairs. It had the place where the VPs might go upstairs. That was, um, you know, slower paced and and more refined, but cleanliness, quality, and speed ruled downstairs. Now note that down. He was exposed at an early age to a restaurant that focused on cleanliness, quality, and speed. <laughs> Like your son, Fred started as a pot walloper. Within two years, Fred had worked his way up from those dishes to bussing tables and then waiting tables. He did some time in the kitchen. He is learning all about the restaurant industry in a very short period of time. He decided he was going to try his luck in the exotic locality, certainly with a better temperature, called New Orleans. And we don't know where he worked in New Orleans. There are several notable hotels. Antoine's, the famous, was already open this early, if you can believe that. It shocked me. It was open 15 years before Fred Mm -hmm. got there. And it's still opened and still run by uh, the original owners. Their descendants. Uh, I've had brunch at Antoine's many times. Either yellow fever or the uncomfortable presence of slavery or the rumblings of war or just plain old nothing but being a young man drove him back north to our familiar crossroads of St. Louis, Missouri, gateway to the west, melting pot of assorted philosophies, shall we say, and ultimately home of the moderately successful Merchants Dining Saloon and Restaurant, which catered to the lively and exciting riverfront trade. With another immigrant as a business partner, with Fred running the hotel, a very small hotel, and the restaurant, and his partner running the saloon, they got along pretty well at first. I think Fred really knew he was going to stay. He knew this was going to be his future because as soon as he could, at the five-year mark, he became a U.S. citizen. Uh, Back then, it was a lot easier than it is now to become a U.S. citizen, but he did it like almost to the day. I love that about him. So Fred Harvey, new citizen, married a woman from Holland whose name was Anne. And the 1860 census lists his household as Fred Harvey, 25, restaurant keeper, Anne Harvey, born Holland. And then we have two Charles Harveys, one a tailor and one a bookkeeper. Interesting. And somebody called Eliza Harvey. And kind of makes me laugh because her name's Eliza and it might be an accent thing. Isn't that funny? Eliza. Oh. 
E-L-Y-S-E-N mm-hmm. is what it's written down as. Spelling was kind of... Anyway, so there you go. That's who's living at the house. So we've got his father living with them at this point. And his first son, whose name is Eddie, was born later that year. Now, we have talked about the role that Missouri and Kentucky played during the Civil War. Neither state ended up seceding, which was a big surprise. You know, we always think think Kentucky's got to be a southern state. And it was. But those states were the closest to a 50-50 split on whose side you were on. You know, if you were in Massachusetts or if you were in Georgia, you could look around and pretty much everyone within striking distance of you, not to put too fine a point on that, thought the same way you did, you know. But living in these divided states, you had to either be super diplomatic or be willing to burn some bridges. Tensions were very, very high. And when war broke out for real, Mr. Doyle, supporter of the Confederacy, showed his colors. Yeah, Fred's partner took all their money and went off and joined the Confederate Army, Mm. leaving Fred high and dry and broke with a wife and a child. And St. Louis was placed under martial law by the Union after some skirmishes. And the trade and travelers and business in general came to a crashing halt. Kind of reminds me of what might happen to a restaurant, say, during the pandemic. Like, the customers just don't Mm -hmm. come because they're... um, Afraid to, and that it, you know, traveling is not very smart, and it, it just naturally came to a halt. Mm-hmm. So he decided he would get a job on the railroad, which is another going concern. But they had a brilliant idea. They were going to just put the bulk mail on a rail car. And then while it's going, some dudes that are in the car could be sorting it on the fly because that's just wasted time. And the Hannibal and St. Joseph Railway was one of the first to adopt the new postal car. And that is the job that he was able to take. So Fred and his family moved to St. Joseph, Missouri. It's a river town on the Missouri River, and it's also a border town between Kansas and Missouri. It's also where the railroad stopped on one side and picked up on the other side with no bridges. So what did they do? Did they put all the passengers on a ferry? Yes. The first business that brought Fred to town for a very short period of time was a ferrying service. He partnered with his friend with the gorgeous name of Rufus Ford, and they ran a ferrying service. And then he started to work with the railroad in one of these postal cars. St. Joseph was also the home of the Pony Express. Mm. A very short-lived, exciting time where, from an ad, young, skinny, wiry fellows not over 18 must be expert riders willing to risk death daily, orphans preferred, took a telegraph from St. Joseph, Missouri, and rode it on horseback to Sacramento, California. (laughs) St. Joseph just appeared in our Aunt Jemima podcast, too. So many historical things converge. Well, Fred's second son, Charlie, was born here. And I'm sorry to say that Mrs. Ann Harvey died shortly afterward. Um, Fred Harvey remarried only four months after Ann's death to one Barbara Sarah Mattis, who is always called Sally. And I don't know if eyebrows were raised at all. This was a time and a place when you needed a mother for your orphaned children. Many thought Sally was, in fact, the one and only Mrs. Harvey that had ever been. 
sadly, both of Anne's sons, both of Fred Harvey's older sons, died of scarlet fever not too long after the departure of their mother. And so his first little family is, um, is gone. And then his first son of his new family, whose name is Ford, was born. So Mr. Harvey, young man of industry, started the hustle. He became a cattle broker. He became a sales agent for the railroad. And while he was out there, why not? He sold ad space for a local paper. I, You know what? You might as well be busy, I guess. <laughs> He had a lot going, a lot of irons in the fire. He was never again going to put all his eggs in that one basket, or so he thought. Mr. Harvey was an on-the-road traveler, on-the-railroad traveler, and this fastidious man hated, hated the food situation he found himself in on the road. He dreaded what he would find, just like we ladies dread having to use those Johnny on the spots at a music festival. You know the hell you're about to face. You're standing outside. You're looking at the door. But biological needs being what they are, you go in anyway. And I was re-listening, like I do, to a Laura Ingalls Wilder book, and it's called By the Shores of Silver Lake. And there is a great description of the railroad cars of the time and um, also a meal that they had. And and the Ingalls family ended up paying 25 cents for all you can eat of good food and a clean place with pie at each place. And, and okay, they lucked out because... Tracy, that city was the end of the line. And who ate at the end of the line? Railroad employees. You treat people in the industry differently than you do the regular customer off the railroad. Your bread and butter is these guys. You know, the Ingalls is locked out. Your average traveler along the route was prey for trickery and graft. The owners of cafes near train stops were not the most honest of men. And they made a deal with the train engineer. For 10 cents a customer, the train engineer would blow the horn as soon as the customer's food was put in front of them. So customers raced back without eating anything to get on the train fast enough. Those cafe owners would then take those uneaten meals and put them back in the kitchen. And they weren't even like high quality to begin with. This is like bulk, grease, and calories. <laughs> One source that I read said it like this, quote, it was limited fare of dubious quality and service ranging from indifferent to surly. Oh yeah, you're looking at gristly meat, quote, gut bombs of biscuits, probably left over from when they swept it with their forearm back into a basket for the next time. Y'all, y'all. After a while, you know, if you had to depend on these cafes, you had a tin stomach and you started eating like those dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, like where you would just have <laughs> your arm curled around it and just bolting your food, just like, gah, 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 you know, like shoving it down your throat. And it was um, <laughs> it was described as hurried, degraded and miserable. You rushed back into your carriage, the very trains ashamed of what you had just done. <laughs> That's not good. No, it's really bad. And even experienced travelers who said, I know I don't want to stop and get food poisoning or beat up trying to get a chair, started to bring their own food on the train. But fried chicken the first day is great fried chicken the third day has maggots on it. So their options of eating were 
completely limited. Well, Fred Harvey looked around at his unhappy companions day after day, and he was infuriated. It doesn't have to be like this. It wasn't volume or speed. Smith and McNell back in New York City proved you could pull off hospitality with those challenges. It was sheer laziness as far as Fred Harvey was concerned and criminal negligence. You know, see a need, fill a need. Fred Harvey was fed up, you know, and he went to the honchos at his Chicago, Burlington and Quincy Railroad and pitched his idea. Good food served fast with a cheerful attitude. Radical. I can pull this off. Just let me try it. So they gave him the go ahead. And his first one, which is in Wallace, Kansas, population 116, was a lot like the end of the line that Laura Ingalls Wilder had faced in Tracy. So the the customers there were soldiers from a nearby fort, railroad men, cattlemen. This is too easy. This was no test. You know, like, no. He tested his real theories and methods on two other restaurants along that same line. And it worked pretty well. But management didn't really give him the free hand that he wanted. Because that wasn't the vision that Fred had. He went back to the Chicago, Burlington and Quincy line and said, look, this is exactly what I want to do. These fine, quality, affordable dining stops. Not what we've been doing, cutting corners. No corners cutting. And the railroad executives said, nah. That doesn't sound like something we want to get involved in. But go see those guys down at the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad. They're young. They'll do anything. So he did. And these guys were like, yes, that would be a great way to increase traffic by guaranteeing that our passengers could have a decent meal on our railroad. So they gave him one to try. See what you can do with Topeka, won't you? Our young friend, they shook gentlemanly hands, and that's the only contract they had. And Harvey knew this was his audition. This is his own personal tipping point. And he shut down that Topeka operation. The Santa Fe agreed they would go ahead and foot the bill for kitchen machinery, most of which was already there. So not that much of a, (laughs) uh, you know, but... (laughs) But Fred had to provide the food and the staff and and the decor. And, you know, that was his deal. And so they brown papered the windows and his own wife came over and helped scrub the floor and mysterious packages were going in and there were sounds of hammering. And it was the original HGTV quick turnaround. It was followed by the reveal and it went just like the TV reveal on your house flipping show. Everyone came in with round eyes and their their hands over their mouths. There were white tablecloths. There was sparkling glassware. And there was a high standard of service among the waiters. I don't know how he found time to train them. I bet he um, poached them. Um, He had a friend from Leavenworth that was in the restaurant and hotel business. And I think that guy brought some folks, you know, stole them, (laughs) brought them up. Um, the, The key was this restaurant was right across the street from the executive office of the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe. And I remember this from being in a store that held the district manager office. You never know. What VP is walking in the door. So you got to always be on your game. And that was like the stress of the Topeka establishment. And you'll read that it was so awesome that the execs were afraid people wouldn't go any further once they got a load of Fred Harvey's spectacular restaurant. You know, it was a medium slow climb to get this reputation. He did get that reputation, but it wasn't like, hey, presto. 
Fred followed up on his vision. For instance, for 35 cents, you could get a steak and egg breakfast. But it wasn't just a little piece of steak and some scrambled eggs. No, it was a steak. It was eggs. It was a side of hash browns. It was a cup of the best coffee in the West. It was six pancakes. This is a huge breakfast. Also, when it came to apple pie, he set out the word, cut these apple pies in quarters. What we're looking for is basically shock and awe. We are not cutting corners. In fact, look at this giant piece of pie that is slopping over the edge. This is how much we love you. He's like, it doesn't cost that much more to give them a quarter of a pie. And they're going to tell all their friends that this is what Fred Harvey does. He wasn't just attracting people off the train and the executives of the railroad. He was attracting people from the town. You know, they were coming in and having this great meal. Even the indigenous people were coming in. And while the other customers were raising their eyebrows, Fred and staff were welcoming them. In an era where there was a lot of bigotry between the white people and the indigenous people, Fred kind of said, forget that. They're all customers to me. Well, he did such a great job with that first audition that he struck a deal with the railroad that he would operate the Clifton Hotel in Florence, Kansas. And Fred Harvey took this so seriously that he traveled to Chicago and lured away the chef from the Palmer House Hotel. That is the fanciest hotel in Chicago. We've talked about it before. And as a PR move, interestingly, the ladies of Florence, Kansas could get a pass to come use the Clifton Hotel's bathrooms twice a week. And the men had some alternating days. You know, he had real silver. He had real crystal. And he exploded the footprint of this hotel. And it was just a show place. It was the first of his eating houses to have hotel rooms. I have taken a uh, a picture. <laughs> it's been on our Instagram for years. It only has seven likes. <laughs> This is from the, the the dark days of our Instagram. It's still there. There's a little quest for you, a little treasure hunt. Um, Because my father-in-law lives very near to Florence and my husband actually graduated from a rural high school near there. So um, go try to find the picture. There's only about a third of it left. It's been moved also. Isn't that interesting? The whole building has been moved from mm -hmm. the train tracks to a residential area and, and they still have themed dinners and things. And unfortunately, you can only go in by appointment. And I, I have never really tried it because we've always been on our way home every time I've gone through, but I imagine it's not too far of a drive for whoever has the key. It's a pretty small town. So one thing that Fred Harvey started focusing on this early in his enterprise was the fact that he wanted the best local high quality food that he could get a hold of. But rather than cheap out and try to trick the local suppliers, he went ahead and paid higher prices than other people. And so he empowered his managers to broker deals for the whole chain. Like, dear manager, do you know a guy? You know, everyone for miles around <laughs> is polishing their tomatoes and like bringing them in for approval in the, the palms of their hands. Like, please. Oh, this could be the, the making or breaking of me, you know, like so he got self-selected high quality because everybody wanted to sell to him. See, it's such a good strategy. He's just thinking ahead. And it's a cost effective one because the deal that he struck with the railroad was they would transport any food items, anything that the Harvey houses needed, they went on train and Fred didn't cover the cost of that. That was the railroad's responsibility. Clever. 
for free. Well, within less than a decade, he was running 17 different establishments along the line and nominally only his home was in Leavenworth, Kansas. Also in Leavenworth, in that home, were five children. So as busy as this man is, he still found time to have five children. That blows my mind because it sounds like he's gone an awful lot. He was gone an awful lot. So let us raise our glasses to his long-suffering wife, I think, who who was functionally in charge of that household, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's a very large household with staff yeah. at this point because Fred's doing pretty good. Well, old Fred was a big believer in the, let's call it, surprise district manager visit. Uh, retail employees, do you feel the pain? Do you feel the pain of this? He expected high standards. And that is period. It's his name on the place. It's his name to get ruined up. Fred Harvey was known for... The books don't put it this way, but I'm going to call him tantrums <laughs> when he showed up and, <laughs> and saw something substandard in one of his restaurants. Like, I mean, what would you call it? He would go in and see something where the table was set wrong and he would yank the tablecloth out. And he is no magician. All those dishes went on the floor and all those dishes would break and he would make the poor soul that had set that table so carefully, they thought, make him pick up all the pieces um, by hand. And, you know, come on now, throwing dinnerware that had a spot against the wall or bodily tossing a manager out the door. <laughs> Which I had a hard time envisioning because Fred was not a very well man. He had had, you know, he'd had that yellow fever and he had had typhoid fever at one point. So he was not very big and he was very proper looking and he had that British accent. So I'm just imagining him trying to toss somebody out the door. But I'm wondering if this was a strategy that he intentionally developed because the kind of people that he had employed at the Harvey houses were not going to respond to, oh, dear chap, would you please kindly move that plate? They're going to respond to the tablecloth being pulled out. Right, because he can't actually spank them with a ruler. <laughs> but this <laughs> is the, I'm not saying it's the greatest, I'm not saying it's the greatest uh, management strategy, but I'm just saying. Or he might take it one step further. So the story goes, he once fired a whole entire restaurant staff and by doing so, changed the face of the American West forever. The best bra is the one you never think about. Those are wise words that I had read at thirdlove.com. And it's true. My best bras are third love bras. Well, I keep talking about it. All my bras are third love bras. I had gone to third love on this particular day because you've heard me talk about their Fit Finder quiz before, but they just launched a new quiz called The Fitting Room. It focuses on breast size, shape, current fit issues, and your personal style. After you take the quiz, the third love prompt says, let me pull some styles for you. And every single one of their bras is backed by the perfect fit promise. If you don't love it, exchanges and returns are free for 60 days. 
while I was in the fitting room, one of the new styles that they showed me was from their new collection, the Ombre Mesh Collection. It is a collection worth obsessing over. The bras have kind of a throwback look, which I love, but a modern feel, which I need. Silky Layered Mesh gets a vintage treatment in Third Love's timeless new collection. I went to check it out just to look, but I literally checked out. I have a purple one coming to me because I love these bras, period. No, exclamation point. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove, spell it out, T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks for 20% off today. So here's the lore. One day, Fred Harvey arrived on a surprise visit to his establishment at Raton, New Mexico. And what, to his wondering eyes, should appear but the bloody, hungover visages of his waitstaff, who had evidently been involved in some sort of drunken bar-clearing hey-ho rumble the night before, and just looking at them made Fred Harvey's hair stand on end like, cut up prize fighters do not go with my silverware. You know, like, he was really upset. Adios, all of you, and your manager. Now, that story is very jovial and very dramatic, etc. And the truth might lie somewhere behind there in that a lot of his servers were men of color. And the further you got into the West, the more prejudiced the populace became, as a lot of people who were traveling in that area were people who had left the Confederate States for freedom to operate the way they saw fit in the territories. And so perhaps their fight was not the result of a delightful night out, but was in fact deeply rooted in some kind of fearsome prejudice. But Fred Harvey thought that dealing with these scenarios was really no way that he could run a business, especially from afar. This was a problem that he had been having. So I think that particular situation was the straw. All across his chain, he had hired local men, sometimes men of color, but none of them were up to his standards. I think this particular incident was just the last one. Well, an employee named Tom Gable is traditionally given credit for suggesting, how about this, Mr. Harvey? Young women should be hired to fill the gaps in the staff. They're not prone to fighting or drinking. Typically, I can bring them in from Kansas. They're both from Leavenworth, you know. So, yes, I like that story. I like the story of the shock and awe and the kicking out of all the people. There is a problem with that story in that there had been some female waitstaff as far back as the OG in Florence, Kansas. So we're never the ones to get in the way of a good origin story. I guess this does seem (laughs) to be the year that the Fred Harvey Corporation began in earnest. So I guess you're right. The the straw that broke the camel's back to just flip the whole thing, like he's pulling the tablecloth out and the dishes are flying everywhere. We're going to upend the whole scenario and start recruiting young women to be the public face of this corporation. 
And so they started to publish advertisements in the newspapers of cities in the Midwest and the East. The ad read, wanted young women 18 to 30 years of age of good moral character, attractive and intelligent in Harvey Eating Houses on the Santa Fe Railroad in the West. Wages, $17.50 a month with room and board. Liberal tips, customary experience, not necessary. Here's the thing. A waitress. There is going to be a giant stigma to overcome. Waitresses, as a class, had a reputation of being lowest of the low, like women who could not get work in a respectable house as a servant. They worked among the public. They talked to men they weren't related to. It was deeply associated with taverns and prostitution. Kansas is one thing, especially when you've hired people from the town and everybody knows them. But there was a saying. There are no ladies west of Dodge City and no women past Albuquerque. And he's wanting these young women to go to New Mexico, even past where ladies go and even past where women go. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, that was a lot to ask. So there was a branding issue that the Fred Harvey Corporation had to perform. Here's some of the things that they had to do to alleviate these problems with the image of waitresses. In addition to a salary that was higher than a lot of men were getting at the time, plus their room and board, they also got uniforms and training and free transportation. The women were to live at the Harvey House itself or in a nearby home in a dorm situation with a dorm mother. They had a pass that they could ride the Santa Fe Railroad whenever they liked. They did have to sign a six-month agreement that they would not get married or they would forfeit their salary if they did. But parents who were not going to be letting their kids out the door to go to New Mexico were like, okay, they're going to be chaperoned the whole time. This sounds actually kind of respectable. Well, middle-class respectability, I've said this before, probably during the Gilded Age and maybe the Emily Post episodes, is more strict than the respectability of either the upper or lower classes. (laughs) So their goal was solid middle-class respectability. There was a woman named Alice Steele who was located in Kansas City, although she wasn't called this, certainly. She was like the HR department. (laughs) And she would interview people for this job. Fair warning, time travelers, if you chew gum, she will veto you. If you're wearing a lot of makeup, she's going to say thank you, no thank you. Correct. And unfortunately, if you are a woman of color, you will be actively barred from participating. I'm very sorry to say that it went on for years and years. In later decades, there were local hires in the West where there were some Latina Harvey girls and also some Native American Harvey girls, but they were the, by far, the exceptions rather than the rule. And I'm sure it wasn't Alice Steele acting alone. I'm sure it was a policy. So that's the downside of this scenario. Mm -hmm. But in general, if you were smiley, and you leaned forward in your chair, and you didn't have exceptionally poor grammar, you got this. They wanted you to have an education, but in this time and in this place, an eighth grade education was considered being done. You know, you were done at 14. So had you been through eighth grade, then that was considered enough of an education to pass through. 
Remember how astonishing the freedom and range a simple bicycle could give a young woman? I mean, you could go unprecedented distances away from the bosom of your family. And as such, a bicycle was considered a dangerous symbol of liberation in some circles. Now magnify that tenfold. Here at the beginning, Fred Harvey sort of self-selected for the bold and the brave. The 19th century didn't give young women very many avenues for adventure, for sure, especially not if you didn't have a lot of money. And look at this opportunity, you know, voila. Some ladies joined for adventure. Some ladies joined because they were desperate to help their family. If you think about this, um, there were some Harvey girls that were able to send all of their income back and literally keep their family above water for years. That's epic. If you weren't educated enough to be a teacher, you didn't have a lot of opportunities to earn money. And here it is just handed to you. And some, of course, might have set out to go to the man-heavy West (laughs) to try to find a (laughs) husband. Uh, The odds were in your favor. I'm just telling you that right now. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. So the applicants flowed like water to the Kansas City office. It was an eagerly received advertisement. Much to the surprise of anybody that heard Fred's idea in the first place. They're like, you're never going to get those women. Well, they did come. Once they passed the interview process, they had about a day to get their things together and get on a train and head out to the training facility. There was one in Topeka. There was another one in Emporia. On the train, they began to experience the Harvey houses. When they stopped at an area that had one, they ate in the Harvey house. They could see other Harvey girls doing exactly what they would be doing. They could see the cleanliness. They could see the level of perfection that Fred was asking for. They went to the training center where they had a month-long training, and it wasn't easy. It was considered like a boot camp almost, and it did a really good job of weeding out the women that weren't strong enough, didn't really want to be there, It just weren't into the whole process. But by the time they graduated and were given their uniforms and sent to the restaurant that they would be working at, these women were excited to become Harvey girls. They were proud of what they were going to be doing. And the uniforms that they got probably would have helped their parents make the decision that it was okay to go because they looked almost like nuns. What they were wearing was a black blouse. It was buttoned all the way up to her chin. She had a black ankle length skirt on. She had a full bibbed white starched apron over that. Black stockings, black shoes, no jewelry, hair up in a bun with a white bow in it, no makeup, Nails had to be trimmed and clean. And if she ever spilled anything on her uniform, it had to be changed right away. But as part of the perks of their job is that uniform was sent off to be cleaned. So there was always clean uniforms to put on. See, I like that because in contrast to even the Gilded Age servants, you know, had to make their own uniform. I don't know if you remember this one episode of Downton Abbey where literally Mary presents to all the servants the female servants, a length of cloth with which to make their next servant uniform. They don't even give you one uniform and you have to make it yourself. It's like slap, slap. No, Fred Harvey's turning that upside down. If I'm going to expect you to look this way, I'm going to provide all of this for you. It's not going to be your responsibility. It's your responsibility to make sure what you have on is clean. But as to the cleaning, we'll put it on the train. 
It wasn't even local laundry. They like took it back to HQ. Yeah, they had centralized operations for a lot of the things that they were doing because they had the train and the Santa Fe Railroad was transporting anything as part of the package that they offered to Fred Harvey for opening up these restaurants in the first place. So the laundry, all of it, the linens, everything went out to a centralized laundry. All the meat came from a centralized area. Even the Harvey girls, as you talked about, are coming from a centralized area and then getting spread out. I almost think the railroad did not fully understand how much transportation they'd be doing. No, I don't either. I don't either. For this for this free scenario, but um, it all worked out. It all worked out. No, Harvey had a system for everything, not just his laundry, not just his produce and meat selections, everything from the attitude he expected, which included things like be human and be yourself. That's refreshing. To the most famous code, probably, that the Harvey House had, which is called the cup code. When a customer walked in and was seated at a Harvey House, a Harvey girl would come over and take their drink orders, but she wouldn't write anything down. What she would do while she was talking with the customers is work with the coffee cups that were on the table. And that would tell the next girl who was going to serve the drinks what to give that person. The Harvey girl taking the order would place the cup in different things upside down next to the saucer, whatever. And it told the next girl who came over what to give that person to drink. There was no paper. It was just magic. I know. It was kind of a little bit of showmanship there because people were like, how do she know? You know, like it was just like they were like, wait, that is what I wanted. I but you're a different person. It was really epic and (laughs) kind of sly and really kind of cool. But there were systems for everything. The thickness the bread slices had to be, the freshness of the orange juice. Evidently, if you pre-squeezed any orange juice and Fred Harvey popped by and saw a picture of it in the fridge, it was like, Lord help you. You know, (laughs) he was very serious about his standards. Everything had to be the way that he had said it needed to be at the beginning. He even had the water tested at each location to determine if it was of a proper pH and lack of minerals to make sure his coffee tasted the way he thought it should. And if it didn't, sure enough, that railroad, what did they have hooked onto their train next time? (laughs) A big old tanker truck full of special water to use for the coffee. He was that serious about it. Speaking of the coffee, that was such a... um, I I don't know what to call it, like a banner item. He was so famous for the coffee in his establishments that they made a point. Every two hours, somebody would get those coffee urns and openly dump them out in front of everyone and remake new. It doesn't matter that that coffee is wasted. It's just like when he used to have the pies cut in quarters. What you're looking for is customer satisfaction with the quality of your product. And if you are openly pouring out the old coffee, oh no, we don't serve this to you. Mm -hmm. You get new, you know, we don't save it like everyone else and just reheat it for your drinking displeasure, you know. So I thought that was also good. And very subconsciously, he encouraged things like, I don't know if he was the inventor of if you have a time to lean, you have time to clean. But when you were not actively serving, you were to polish things or sweep things or tidy things. You were always to be busy making the environment better because if the customer saw you so concerned with what he saw, the confidence in what he did not see in the kitchen was also increased and it increased trust in the name Fred Harvey. 
But they needed all of these systems in place. They needed all of their staff to know everything. That's what these girls learned in their boot camp training because they only had 30 minutes to serve their meal. But when a customer came off the train and came in, everybody was ready for them. The staff on the train would go around and find out how many people would be dining. They would send a telegraph from the train to tell the Harvey House how many people were coming in. Sometimes they could even tell them approximately how many people were going to want what at their plates. In the relatively rare occasions where they didn't have a stop that was suitable for telegraphing, there was also a horn code that would tell people like a train horn code that you could hear from a certain amount of miles away and they would get the information that way. I mean, that is like some serious forethought, I think. (laughs) Well, they needed it. They only had 30 minutes to feed a four course meal to how many ever people they could fit into their dining rooms. So you, the customer, would emerge from the train and you would be welcomed with a gong. You'd know right where to go because you'd hear the gong and you're led to a sparkling clean table where somehow your drink order was known and fulfilled with, oh my God, this coffee and a hot, fresh, nice plate of food that had never been on anyone else's plate or seen the inside of a trash can, E-W-W was placed before you on china plates that were pristine with not a chip. You had a big, clean napkin to cover your clothes. You know, train travel is in general just very dirty, and this made you feel nice and fresh, and you had nice silverware to use, and these smiling ladies made you feel that you were their guest. You're not a nuisance. You're not a commodity to be run through like a a cow in a chute, you know, Uh, it's so good to meet you, sir. Would you like some more coffee? What a change from only 10 years ago when you came through on your sales route or whatever you were doing, you know, it's like amazing. And whatever you ordered at one Harvey house at the next one you stopped at for your next meal, you could order something totally different because the menus rotated from Harvey houses. They were all uniform across the company, but they had a rotation system for the menus. You didn't have to have quail. You know, you could have something else that hadn't been presented to you before. It was very exciting. Well, the waitresses at Fred Harvey's establishments began to be known as Harvey Girls. That was just the name everyone called them. And a Harvey girl had lots to live up to, just as Fred Harvey intended. And this is the list of things that a Harvey girl alumna once said about her sisterhood. She said that a Harvey girl must have the smile of a Greek goddess, the patience of Job, the memory of an elephant, the grooming of a duchess, the speaking voice of a debutante. (laughs) This is funny. The staying power of a (laughs) mother-in-law. And a love of humanity for humans show their worst side when they are hungry. But these high standards really made these women so proud of being involved with this organization. So much like a sorority house. It was like the Ada Ada sorority, you know, Harvey House sorority. It was the high standards that put them up on their pedestal. And poems and songs began to be written about this quote, ideal woman. I almost think it was kind of a fantasy kind of Mm -hmm. situation, like a pinup girl 
scenario. And I think it was only natural, though, that in the man Heavy West, thoughts began to turn toward these paragons of womanly virtue. Fred Harvey, as Susan said earlier, actually legitimately had the foresight to have them sign that they wouldn't marry for six months, if you remember. But he knew, he knew, most of the dorms had an official courting parlor in them, after all. (laughs) You could actually be fired for consorting with another member of staff. You know, workplace Love is awkward. And I think Fred Harvey's <laughs> like, you know, I might be losing my front of house employees at this rate, but I refuse to let the chefs and cooks leave me at this rate too. Like, no, no. And, you know, there were exceptions if your manager didn't press it or whatever. But like for the most part, the guys in the back were off limits. However, tens of thousands of Harvey girls met and married out west to railroad employees townsmen, ranchers, and homesteaders. The average tenure at one point during the expansion was five months. Now, just like Angela Lansbury's character in the famous Harvey Girls movie says, the men are marrying up them waitresses faster than Fred Harvey can send them out. (laughs) But once they married... They settled in the area and they brought the same pride and respectability and enthusiasm for creating community into these brand new communities. These are the women that found the West. The Harvey girls changed the character of the communities they joined. And I am reminded again of Elora Ingalls book, Little Town on the Prairie. We start with railroad camps. The only ladies in railroad camps are doing laundry or other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Then you get towns with saloons. But soon when women started coming west, there was disapproval of drinking establishments and gambling establishments. There was the building of a church. There was the opening of a school. And Fred Harvey, as newspapers in the East started saying, was bringing happiness and civilization to the American West. And not everybody was happy about this particular saloons and gambling houses <laughs> who were losing money and and there were instances of arson of rocks through windows of threats how scary is that i mean that's familiar to anyone who's actually seen the famous movie but inevitably progress rolled over the wild west with this blanket of respectability And for the rest of his life, Tom Gables, the guy who brought the idea of Harvey Girls to Fred, he said, quote, that's how I brought civilization to New Mexico. He took credit for these societies forming all over the West. I, you know, that I can't even dispute this. No. 5,000 babies were born to former Harvey Girls and named Fred or Harvey. So maybe (laughs) it's not Tom. Gable that gets the credit. It's actually Fred Harvey. (laughs) I think it would be very interesting to know if your family tree included a Harvey girl. Like if there'd been no Fred Harvey or no Tom Gable, we'll give him some credit. Uh There'd be no you. Yeah. You know, I was trying to do the math and I couldn't figure out what search terms to use. And, And I know genealogists might have a better handle on this, but I was looking this up and from that first generation of Harvey girls like that far back, there might be 300 descendants per Harvey girl. Wow. Um, But, you know, as it comes up in years, you get less. But I'm just thinking the chances of people literally not existing right now are great Mm -hmm. had that not happened. I don't know. Oh, no, definitely. And 
the numbers might have been decreasing as time went on, but generations of daughters were sent off to become Harvey girls. It was almost like a working class or middle class finishing school because these girls would end up having more poise and more confidence when they were finished. So one Harvey girl, then her sister comes and then she's gone. Then her sister comes. So it's yeah, there's a lot. Wow. Somebody mathy should figure that out. There were 100,000 Harvey girls over the course of the entire Fred Harvey empire. And some did stay, of course. They were given pins to wear with years of service on them, and they wore them quite proudly. They were able to save all their money or send home most of their money. Some Harvey girls supported entire extended families. Some climbed the corporate ladder and became managers of eating houses on their own. Farm women, I love this so much. Such a flexible workplace. Farm women could go home in the summer, you know, or during harvest time to be replaced by teachers who were on break right then. It's the original job sharing flex time. The realities of women's responsibilities, you know, Mm -hmm. he was also willing to work around college schedules. And so in many ways, not just marriage, Fred Harvey changed the lives of women and their families. While most Harvey girls did follow a certain respectable path, one Harvey girl in particular, her name was Mildred Cussey. She didn't exactly follow the traditional Harvey girl life trajectory. She was employed by a Harvey house in California. But she had a side hustle that was kind of hustling. So she quit waitressing, moved to New Mexico, got a job at a brothel, then ran a chain of her own brothels. So perhaps she learned her entrepreneurship from her tenure at the Harvey House. I think so. A chain. She had a chain of brothels, just like Fred Harvey had a chain of restaurants. So some Harvey girls got to finish college under the umbrella of the Fred Harvey organization. But you know who didn't get to finish college? Fred Harvey's own eldest son, Ford, who had been pulled out his sophomore year to begin learning the ropes. He was destined from birth for this gig, just like Prince Charles in his life. But Fred Harvey himself was unwell just as a habit. And though he had, you know, trusted lieutenants, he wanted to make certain that there would be a Harvey in charge of his empire when that dark day came and he would go off into the void. Well, Mr. Pullman of the Pullman car fame had successfully invented what he called the vestibule, which meant that a passenger could now travel from train car to train car while the train was moving. Radical. And therefore, the Santa Fe decided that it was going to try a newfangled invention also designed by George Pullman, the dining car. And on the initial route for the dining car, Fred Harvey, Meals by Fred Harvey, was on all the advertisements of the Santa Fe by now. It was a name. It was a it was a benefit. And so that is a new venture that they're setting out on. Meals by Fred Harvey in a dining car. The Santa Fe line, in addition to its new dining car service by Fred Harvey in Chicago, decided that they were going to expand out to California IA. Eight more eating houses had to be converted and set up and staffed and supplied. Well, this added two times the geography to the Fred Harvey empire, but honestly, it was about nine times the headaches. 
everybody was so far from the supply chain now that a whole new scenario had to be invented from the West side aiming toward the east side, you know, just to make sure the standards were maintained. It was a giant amount of stress. Poor Fred Harvey. Plus, the railroad thought just now it would go ahead while he was occupado and pull a fast one. And hey, they say to themselves, pulling their cigars out their mouths, what are we doing with this guy? Why don't we just operate the dining cars ourselves? Fred wasn't really keen on that idea. Of course. (laughs) With the dining cars, the trains could keep going right past all those Harvey House restaurants. So Fred took them to court and he did win. Not only did he win the right to run the dining cars on the trains, he won a concession fee from the railroad per diner. So that added up to a lot of money just for someone walking into the dining car. Yeah. So how about those shady business practices, Santa Fe Railroad? How about that for being ungrateful? After all I've done for your image, (laughs) take a bow. But I mean, think how much stress that is. So you've got extra restaurants. You've got this court battle with, you know, fundamentally your only source of income. (laughs) And then came the panic of 1893, basically another Great Depression. Prices fell, travel slowed, business slowed. It could have been a death knell. And there was a lot of shifting and a, a lot of tap dancing. Oh, the Columbian Exposition is coming in Chicago. And perhaps we can win the concession for this worldwide stellar billboard event. And so they participated in an audition dinner. It was kind of a dinner off between Fred Harvey and the Wellington Hotel of Chicago. Thousands and thousands of people showed up for this dinner. There was 120 waiters, six chefs, 150 gallons of coffee, 120 gallons of chicken salad, 300 pounds of cake. <laughs> the, the event went so well that Fred and the Wellington Hotel decided to team up to handle the dining at the World's Fair and bid together. But the last minute, they lost it to a company out of New York. It was another blow followed immediately in Chicago. And we talked about this during the Jane Addams podcast, the Great Pullman Strike of 1894, which not only affected Chicago, but affected railroads all across America and therefore Fred Harvey's supply chain. So, oh my goodness. And what did Fred Harvey do after all of this stressful period in his life? Fred Harvey received advice from his doctors that he should remove himself from the source of his stress. But as the source of his stress was functionally um, America, (laughs) he was advised to go to Europe for his health. Uh, Something that he had done quite regularly under the guise of supply trips or buying linens or, you know, this and that for for pretty much the entirety of his career. But now he was gone for extended periods of time. He was away from his business for years and apart from his wife for years. So Ford, his son, and Fred Harvey's lieutenant were pretty much running everything behind the scenes everything, all aspects. And it was a vice president at Santa Fe that basically told Fred Harvey it was time to retire. You know, let the boys do it, he said. But basically, he's like, get out of my face. 
And Ford got the right, right after this, to put Fred Harvey's in all of these new, uh, quote, union stations that were popping up where multiple railroads would be able to have a hub. That's kind of amazing. Also, he got the news agents and the gift shops all along the Santa Fe line, as well as the dining cars. So now, literally anywhere along the line, if you're a customer, no matter what you want to put in your mouth, it was supplied to you by the Fred Harvey Company. Uh, you know, if it was a snack, if it was gum, if you wanted to sit at a lunch counter at the Union Station, if you wanted to go to a Fred Harvey restaurant or eat in a dining car, Fred Harvey, not the Fred Harvey Company, Fred Harvey was there for you because that's how Ford and the other upper executives decided they were going to handle the company. You should see, by the way, the former Fred Harvey space in the Kansas City Union Station. The ceilings are high. It is epic. And they did try to run it as a Fred Harvey for a while. But, you know, it just it it couldn't make it there. It, this was kind of before our downtown had really revitalized or whatever. And I think they're a little bit ahead of their time. There is a restaurant occupying part of the space called Pierpont that is just spectacular. Maybe <laughs> we should link you to. Union stations are just like modern cathedrals, I think. Oh, I agree. And they're everywhere. If you've ever traveled the United States, you go to a city, there's a union station there. One of the things that Ford did at the time with these union station restaurants is because there were so many trains coming through different lines and because the United States had a very large flood of immigrants coming in, this is where Ford began to hire bilingual Harvey girls so that they could talk to any customer that came in in their native language and make them feel at home. Epic. Well, Harvey Houses expanded again through Oklahoma, through Texas, and uh, over to Tennessee, as far south as parts of Alabama. That's pretty amazing. I know. I was surprised to hear that because I think, you know, west of the Mississippi. Right. Well, Fred's daughter, Minnie, wanted to be involved in the business, but ultimately she had to follow the path that so many intelligent, driven women have in the past. I mean, we're talking Eleanor of Aquitaine level of having to deal with this. The, her husband, the, the son-in-law, was the one that was hired instead and given great responsibility. And she just had to be, you know, the woman behind the throne. I find that ironic, given the fact that Fred Harvey was the one that made a hundred thousand women into breadwinners, you know? Mm-hmm. But yet there's no room at the inn for a woman at the top of this corporation that might actually have real power. So he, she has to watch her brother functionally running their father's entire empire. And she, equally intelligent and driven and educated, there's no place for her. She has to work by proxy. And I find that kind of heartbreaking a little bit, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I agree completely. Although she was one of the society women here in Kansas City, so we have a lot to thank her for here. But yeah, no, it's that is weird, isn't it? Well, the pressure was on for another facet of the business. The Santa Fe Railroad was planning to build grand hotels in the Southwest with, drumroll, meals by Fred Harvey. The first one, the Castaneda, opened to grand fanfare and hosted no less a luminary than Mr. Teddy Roosevelt himself. 
We are going to talk more on the Southwest expansion later, but this is where it all began with a glamorous event in a hotel built in a style entirely new. Unfortunately for Fred Harvey, he was mortally ill. After visiting all the doctors that he could in Europe and he came back to the United States, he went to one final specialist in California and they made him understand that there was nothing else that could be done for his health. He had had lifelong digestive issues. He had had lifelong problems because of the yellow fever and the typhoid fever that he had had in his younger years. He had had colon cancer. There was absolutely nothing that could be done. So Fred took his final train ride from California back to Leavenworth. And at each Harvey House stop, all of the employees were standing at the platform in silence to honor the man. They paid their respects. They did. And six days after he came home to Leavenworth, Fred Harvey died, surrounded by his family. And in his will, he stated that everything should just go on as if he were alive with nothing changed for 10 more years. Keep the house, run the business, sell nothing. After 10 years, you know, there was provision for where the money should go, but what an unusual will. It was almost like he was trying to put in force an entail destined to preserve an estate for the next generation. He was very, very happy with how his elder son, Ford Harvey, had taken the reins and was running his empire. And most importantly, before he died, he told his son how proud he was of him, which is not always the case. So I think with this will, he was trying to give his son another 10 years to build and cement and grow the business. So mm -hmm. that was his last gift to the people of Fred Harvey Company. And Ford Harvey agreed. The name Fred Harvey, with all of its connotations of reliability and quality, would live on. Legacy Box is an ingenious mail-in service to have all those irreplaceable moments that are trapped on videotapes, camcorder tapes, film reels, and pictures converted to DVDs or digital. Home movies can transport us back to unforgettable times. But when was the last time you watched yours? Do you even have a machine that will play them? One song, one photo... One sniff of nostalgia can take us back to summer bike rides or Little League championships or family vacations. I myself sent in a bunch of videotapes that were found in a closet. And oh, what to my wondering eyes should appear childhood memories. Those brain cells just hadn't activated in years. And honestly, I cried and Zoomed my sister and we watched them together. It's an amazing way that you can bring your family together in these times of being apart. Legacy Box was founded by college roommates Nick and Adam over a decade ago. Over 850,000 families have trusted them to digitally preserve their past. Get started preserving your past today. Go to LegacyBox.com chicks to get an incredible 40% off your first order. 
by today to take advantage of this exclusive offer. Send it in when you're ready. Go to LegacyBox.com slash chicks and save 40% while supplies last. It was a new era for the Fred Harvey Company, currently officially being run by his eldest son, Ford Harvey. And I would say that the postcard we should show you for this new era in the company's history would be Ford Harvey standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, looking out at the rugged vista, the red sunsets, the the blue shadows, just something that touched his heart. He went to the Grand Canyon the very year of his father's death, and it really got into his spirit. His vista was rugged, but perhaps his trip was not what you would call camping. No, not at all. The president of the Santa Fe Railroad had gathered together this elite group of travelers and their servants and staff, and they were going on this southwestern exploration. And it's it was glamping. No question. It was night early 1900s glamping. Very comfortable. But that maybe helped Ford have his, I, I don't want to say it was an epiphany, but his connection to the area and inspired his next moves, maybe. Okay, before we get into his next moves, I would actually like to take a giant step back. Do you remember when we talked about Teddy Roosevelt uh, having his big Rough Riders reunion at the Castaneda Hotel that Fred Harvey had opened in 1898? Actually, have you seen the movie Red Dawn? Because if you have, it plays the part of Russian HQ in um, Patrick Swayze's Red Dawn. So if you see that again... (laughs) That's the Castaneda Hotel. So the Santa Fe Railroad and Fred Harvey, the company, are expanding into hotels, bigger hotels, resort areas, destination areas. And in the Southwest, like it's exotic, but still in the United States. What an exciting place for people to travel to. One of the first hotels that they had opened was called the Alvarado in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So there is a little dip in the toe of the glamorous new Southwest continued through the 1890s when one of the New Mexico managers got the idea to source local jewelry and other work from local artists, Navajo people, Hopi, Pueblo. These items became extraordinarily popular souvenirs, first at one hotel and then at all the Southwest hotels for customers to bring home from their travels. Herman Schweitzer was his name, and Fred Harvey's daughter Minnie was absolutely enchanted by these items, by their history, by all the stories behind them, and the whole concept of like the real West, in contrast to, say, our old friend Annie Oakley <laughs> um, and Buffalo Bill's Wild West show and and the hokey Wild West that the public was increasingly learning to, if not mock, at least distrust. Right. So it became very important to the people in the know to have authenticity in their travel and history and kind of timelessness. And Minnie convinced her brother Ford that this was an area to dig into. And Ford agreed and immediately made her 
husband, wah, 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 the head of the new, quote, Indian department of the Harvey Company. Over the course of the next few years, the members of the, quote, Indian department decided that the actual jewelry that was coming in from the artisans was not meeting the needs of the modern traveler as much as it could. And so they redesigned the jewelry to be lighter, to have more nicely polished stones, to have cut work and also stamped motifs that people unfamiliar with Indian culture would recognize as, quote, Indian. So they perhaps ironically made the jewelry they were selling less authentic. I will say that Fred Harvey jewelry is a giant segment of the jewelry collector's market. It is kind of amazing how much of it you'll find and how many different designs there are and how avid the collectors are. So I'm not saying it's not awesome in its own right. It actually is. My mother, whose father worked on the Santa Fe, actually had quite a bit of Fred Harvey jewelry um, of her very own brought back as souvenirs by her father. So, So it was a delightful thing to have, but I just thought it was kind of funny that Minnie's whole thing was the authenticity. And then the very first thing they do is... is- water it down. Lighten it up. Yeah, by 50%. Right. Yeah. Right. I want to just point out that just like when Fred Harvey, the man, started sourcing things locally, the same thing is going on here. So it's actually putting Native American artisans to work that are in the area. It's helping the economy of the area, even if it isn't truly authentic. Well, and I wanted to say I did not find or read any hint that the Fred Harvey Company cheated or tricked or cheaped anyone out. That is not his MO. If you recall, way back in the day, he's like, I'm paying top dollar for Mm -hmm. these eggs. I'm paying more money for this because what I want is the best stuff. I want the best artisans to come. I want my place has the best stuff. So I do think you're right. I think he dealt with them properly. And these are marketers, so they know what's going to sell to their audience. Right. So it's kind of like a compromise. And maybe it was also a gateway that people, I have no proof of this, but I can see it happening. People buying this, you know, Navajo light jewelry and then getting farther into collecting and getting more authentic pieces down the line. Now, it's ironic that you would say that because the very thing happened to Mr. Schweitzer. He began to collect Native American art and artifacts and then sold them to major museums all over the country through a connection with the Field Museum in Chicago. Highly recommend, by the way, if you think of it, it's the one with the giant T-Rex in the lobby. Mm -hmm. Um, So epic, right on Museum Row. Yeah, so easy to go to. I'm I'm like, what's her name? The T-Rex. Sue, I think. Oh, (laughs) Yes. <laughs> That's why I couldn't remember it. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> okay, then. Hilarious, Susan. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, uh, so once upon a time, New Mexico and Arizona were just something you had to get through before you could reach your real destination, which is, of course, California. But the Fred Harvey hotels and museums and gift shops and their development of interest in the Southwest were causing quite a desire for travel there. It's even printed on menus and on promotional material that what you were going to see was, quote, the romance and mystique of the real Southwest. 
In addition, they would have what they called live exhibits. Mm, shades of the World Fair. <laughs> I talked about this during the Aunt Jemima episode, and, and it's not the same necessarily, but there would be, for example, women weaving rugs right in front of you. That's their job is to be there and weave rugs. There would be potters there, basket weavers, jewelry makers, and the tourists would, of course, buy wares that looked like that. I, you know what? Maybe I could just think of it as they were docents, kind of like oh, yeah. showing people how these things that they were about to see in the museum had been created. So I'm not going to feel so bad about it. But like at the World's Fair, I was really depressed that they brought in whole, you know, villages worth of people to like be looked at like animals in the zoo. And and right. I will step back from what I said before. These people were not treated that way. So don't let me slander the Fred Harvey Company. <laughs> okay, so here, the woman that was in charge of at first decorating these establishments, another woman, another Harvey girl of a sort in our story, architect Mary Elizabeth Coulter. When Mary Coulter was brought in to work on the Alvarado project, she was a 33-year-old art teacher in St. Paul, Minnesota. But at a very young age, she had seen some art created by Sioux Nation members and became fascinated with it. So she had had almost a lifelong love of this area and the art the people created. Her family had moved so that she could attend the California School of Design, which was then a new and one of the only art schools in California. While there, she studied drawing and painting. She did intern at an architecture firm. And when she graduated, the family went back to Minnesota, where she kind of dabbled in archaeology and metalwork. She ran with a cultured set, gave lots of lectures with titles like the utilitarian basis of the aesthetic. Like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, it was probably in one of those situations when she met Fred Harvey's daughter, Minnie, and the two of them um, shared a membership in the Native American arts and crafts fandom. That's what they had in common. So Minnie, I think, was the conduit to get Mary Coulter involved in this project. So she began, Mary Coulter, working full-time, though, for the Fred Harvey Company in the year 1910. She was sort of semi-officially promoted from the role of interior designer to architect, and she actually ended up working for the Fred Harvey Company for almost four decades. She served as the chief architect and chief decorator for the company. She um, created 21 hotels or lodges or just public areas, you know, for the Fred Harvey Company. And she wanted, just like many did, authenticity. But something she considered were things like flow of customers, eye movement, usage of natural materials so that her buildings would meld smoothly into whatever environment they were placed in. I think she was also very um, cognizant of the use of the focal point or drama to create excitement when somebody came into a room. Somebody wrote, I'd say it's kind of dismissive, but it actually is kind of apt that she was one of the pioneers of the great American theme park, <laughs> which is kind of true. Yeah. I think of her as the person who kind of launched the what we think of as the Santa Fe style which I think combines, you know, modern living with 
um, traditional, oh my gosh, I'm going to say this word, aesthetics of the of the area. Well, yeah, the chandeliers were handmade. There were textiles from nearby artisans. The lighting was made of tin and copper, hand-carved wood, hand-painted cabinetry, even the Hopi house. I think we're going to show you some pictures of this. It is amazing the attention to detail she put into the stonework of the Hopi house. Even more astonishing, there is an edifice. She didn't make it until significantly later, like in the 30s. But if you could see this watchtower, it looks like something out of The Hobbit. Mm -hmm. It looks Mm -hmm. like it's been there. And it's always been there and it always will be there. The end. Yes. Yes. If you travel to the area, Mary Coulter is a focus of a lot of tour conversations. They'll talk about Mary Coulter's contributions. I just want to plug this in here just so that it's on the record. There is someone out there who's published a book, 950 pages, saying that her legacy is a hoax. And I didn't read the whole thing, but I do have a cousin who happens to be a female architect in Arizona. And I asked her about Mary Coulter, and I just want to share what she said. Almost every architect has teams of people, and most starchitects, was her word, feed off of many talented individuals and get to take the credit for creative energy under their name and fame because their early original work was very original and prolific, and it caught the attention of wealthy people. All male starchitects could perhaps be put into the same persona as Mary Coulter in this situation with a book written about how they didn't do that work. No, explain starchitect to me. I don't understand why she keeps saying starchitect. Starchitect, an architect who all these other people work under, but it's in their name. So that's the star. So Mary Coulter was the star. She was the head of the department. And there were actual other architects. Her background in architecture is pretty thin. It's more in design. She was heading the team and it was all under her name. And that any male architect today with the same type of celebrity would have a similar team underneath them. Well, yeah. Okay. Like, think not that she's up to the same level, but like that. What's her name? Joanna Gaines is not in there by herself with a little paintbrush at all times. I mean, I'm sure she has a team of people. Right. Right. Exactly. I'm sure Bobby Burke of the Queer Eye does not show up with his screwdriver in his pocket and pull that all off in two days. You know what I mean? No, so, I know. so it is a little it is a little disingenuous for people to to say, as whatever author this is seems to be hinting, that just because she had a team, it wasn't her work and she doesn't deserve to be celebrated for it. She had a vision. She had standards that really were a lot like Fred Harvey, as far as I'm concerned. You know, she she knew how she wanted it. She got the right people on the task. She imported more than she needed so she could pick the right things. I mean, there is a fireplace in one of those buildings that is still renowned for her subtle use of color and texture to evoke the canyon right outside. I mean, like, come on now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just because she did not have her hand on every stone doesn't mean that's not her fireplace, you know? Correct. That's exactly my point. And I feel almost sorry that this guy spent so much time digging up all this documentation to support his theory that her claim is a hoax. Well, it didn't help also that for some reason, 
Um, maybe legal. I don't know. The Santa Fe company did have their head architect, a man, but that's just the odds, sign off on all of her plans. And so honestly, I think it got a little muddied there contemporarily during Mm -hmm. the time whose work that really was. Right. If anything, I think she didn't have enough credit at the time and then got it appropriately later. Well, so next time you go to the Grand Canyon, you can, you know, see the Hopi House, you can see the Watchtower, you can see the Phantom Ranch, the Bright Angel Lodge. Some of her work is designated as a national treasure, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so. Right, right. You can still tour it. Yeah. Perhaps the grandest example of all the elements that make Mary Coulter, Mary Coulter, the La Fonda Hotel in Santa Fe opened in 1925. I, I wrote. This is an example of unlimited artisanry. It's like (laughs) nobody put a finger on her. She just was allowed to like do whatever she wanted there. And it is just like a cavalcade of themed decor there. And that is largely regarded as the beginning of what we might think of now as, quote, Santa Fe style Mm -hmm. in decor or architecture. There was a period in Pier 1 history when I worked there that it was like, whoa, that's a very popular scenario. All that peach and sage and dusty yeah. tan and rope stuff. And so um, so we can thank Mary Coulter to bring all these disparate elements of the Southwest together in one mm-hmm. place. Yeah. I really thought of you a lot when I was learning about her because she combined design and marketing like you had talked about. And that's kind of what you do. You know, I was thinking the same thing. It's I mean, and I'm not tooting my own horn or whatever, but it's not very common to find someone who combines the creative with the numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and her first thing that she created at the Alvarado, people had 30 minutes to go through the Indian rooms, you know, that museum slash gift shop. They only had 30 minutes because it was a train stop. And she managed to get them flowing through, spending their money, learning about the culture and back on the train, just like a Harvey House restaurant fed people and got him back on the train. Do you think she would approve or disapprove of the arrows on the floor at Ikea? (laughs) I would say disapprove. (laughs) Although people do flow through there in an organized manner, Mm -hmm. I guess, because of the merchandising and the store layout. So maybe. I I think she'd really like the parts where everything is set up as a room, but you can buy Mm -hmm. everything in there. Right. That's, right. And that's like that would appeal to her. Yeah. Well, that's what she did in that in the Alvarado Hotel. Is she created rooms just like that, you know, and then the person is making the stuff. And it's this is how it's gonna look in your Victorian house. You know, it's gonna be great. As America's love affair with the car began to take over and trains just weren't the powerhouses they used to be, the Fred Harvey Company, always flexible, took another forward-thinking leap into specialized excursions with things they called Indian detours. They began to, from their Southwest hotel locations, took tours that would go either one day or a three-day tour, and you would be driven through things they called wilderness panoramas to Indian ruins, to places that Native Americans actually lived. They actually had cars and drivers that were all men and uh, all in costume. And then the women, the tour guides called couriers that were basically Wild West outward bound Harvey girls. (laughs) 
um, who had to be trained for months on in-depth knowledge of the area to be able to field any questions given to them. (laughs) The roads were boo-boo, you know, the roads were not good. So the mechanics had to be put through their paces, like, can you jack a car on a 45 degree angle? Can you, you know, all kinds of things. (laughs) They had to have four years experience as a mechanic in order to be driven. I mean, you know, they had high standards for the drivers too. The costumes they wore, we'll have to give you a picture, uh, were very heavily theme parked. <laughs> Their skirts were made of velvet and they had concha belts. Do you remember concha belts? They were so popular in the like late 70s. Yes. 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 I yeah. <laughs> and a one day tour cost the equivalent of about 200 bucks. So it's not for the average traveler. This is actually a very high-end tour, Mm -hmm. which didn't include meals, in fact. Right. (laughs) Those were extra if you wanted to eat food. So you'd drive around in the car and you'd have the brochure, which says things like, on the broad highway, modernity flashes past horseback Indians and tiny burrows packing firewood to Santa Fe, just as they did three centuries ago. Everywhere on this open upland are evidences of the forgotten people. So they're kind of selling the romance of a bygone era, I guess. Yeah. They also um, developed these ceremonies. You know, again, I'm here with this. Is this appropriation? Um, Some troops of Native Americans were, I don't want to say dragooned because I'm certain they were paid a fair wage and everything. But here come the expensive tourists in their packards or whatever expensive car was driven up the road to be met with a full, quote, traditional costume dance routine, which may or may not have any connection to an actual ceremony that they would have performed. In fact, I kind of hope it didn't. Hope it was Mm. choreography. But they didn't really interact with the tourists. So they were they were an act instead of locals to be visited. I don't know. I think there's like a distinction to be made there. And Maybe I'm investigating it too thoroughly. I don't know. <laughs> I just kept thinking of like Hawaii. You know, you go and you have to go to the luau. You know what? You're right. It is exactly like a luau. So I guess, you know, how oppressed are the people at the luau? Probably not. Or are they? I, I don't know. Right in. I, I No idea. How is it to participate in kind of a... I don't know, like a whitewashed version of your actual life. It just doesn't seem awesome to me. No, I'm still heartbroken over Queen Lilikulani, so I'm probably not the right person to ask. Now, the, the one thing they did is bring awareness to the area. People were excited by what they saw and then went home and dug in. So just like the History Chicks podcast, you know, what the detours did is give you a taste for something that you went back and investigated on your own. Not everyone, of course not everyone, wanted to dig in further, but I can only imagine it did open the minds of a certain segment of the tourists to, you know, the actual history of the people that lived there and appreciation for the art. Mm -hmm. I guess that would be the benefit of that. In addition to bringing tourism dollars to a place that wouldn't have had that income. Correct. Correct. And that is an advance. And as all these new hotels with their restaurants and tourist areas, resorts began to open, Harvey Girls came. At the Grand Canyon, there were 500 employees, including Harvey Girls, who lived on site at its peak. Mary Coulter designed the dorms, too, by the way. (laughs) 
So it's a Harvey House community. I love that. The thing that kind of amazes me about all of this, when Ford Harvey took that trip in 1901, the Grand Canyon was a hole in the ground. There were some tourists that went there, but nothing like it is now. Teddy Roosevelt himself was so taken with the Grand Canyon during an early tour that he designated the Grand Canyon a national monument, which is a step to being a a, a national park in 1908. Um, So it had protected status that far back. But due to the efforts of people like Ford Harvey... Mm-hmm. In 1919, President Woodrow Wilson finally gave it the designation that it deserves. So that was years, almost 20 years after Ford Harvey stood on the edge and just had a moment. You know, that's the Fred Harvey, the company really helped build the area into what we know of as the Grand Canyon, you know, tourist destination. In 1926 is when Route 66 opened up. So Fred Harvey, the company, Ford is guiding them to change with the times. Another advance, although Harvey House restaurants were obviously closing down as Americans were traveling in different methods and trains were so much faster. The ones that were still there in the 1920s, the uniform was finally shortened by eight inches. (laughs) (laughs) They look really cute, though, actually. I think the thing about the 20s that people don't realize is up until then, why do you care about your shoes, really? You know, in the Edwardian and Victorian era, who's going to see your shoes if you're a proper lady? Nobody. So but then in the 20s, man, those T-strap shoes, I'm fanning myself. Same, same, same. So they were dragged a little bit into the modern era. I do recall seeing ladies with bobbed hair. It could be that fake bob that a lot of ladies wore where you'd roll your hair up in a bun at the back. Then the front was finger waved as if you had bobbed it. So I don't know. But they, the Harvey girls were now modern women. So that's good. Another change in Fred Harvey, the company was in 1928 at the age of 62, Ford died in a flu epidemic. So next in line would be his brother, Byron, who was kind of a figurehead president. He didn't even live in Kansas City, which was the center of the company. The man that did all the work was the next guy down, and that was Freddie, who was kind of a playboy, but he was doing a lot of the work that Byron was taking credit for. Now, you're going to read about Freddie And I want to say his wife's name was Betty, and I kind of hope not. But anyway. It actually was. No, it was. But you'll read about them. They are um, men and ladies about town in Kansas City society. And it is very easy to find a mention of them in the newspapers from that era, if you're at all interested. (laughs) So the grandson, Freddie, was the one that sort of took the helm, really. One of the things that Freddie did during his tenure was see how people were traveling, just like his father Ford had done. And he said, oh, everyone's traveling by plane. Maybe we should start an airline. And so he tried with some very wealthy friends to form an airline called Transcontinental Air Transport. The idea was Meals by Harvey would be served on the plane. And maybe in the future, we could have restaurants in airports. Wouldn't that be great? The airline had some big problems, including a major crash that killed some people. Yeah. So it didn't get off the ground. Oh, come on now. What eventually happened with this airline that Freddie had helped begin, it merged with another and that corporation became TWA. So he has a teeny little part in TWA. 
in this part of the Harvey story, it kept occurring to me that the Harvey family wasn't playing with the big boys. They were big boys. Yeah. You know, the Depression really put the kibosh on most leisure travel, as you would expect. The hotel industry was not doing so well, neither was the restaurant industry. It was only really brought back and sort of only on sufferance by World War II, which brought Harvey girls out of retirement to feed troop trains and also migrating war workers on a very short-term, short-notice basis. If you can imagine any workforce that would be ready for a random train coming in full of hungry (laughs) people who don't have a lot of time to eat, it would be the entire sorority of Harvey girls, of cooks, of prep cooks, of bus boys, of dishwashers that worked at Harvey houses all across America just flooded in to help. And they made sack lunches for troops that couldn't stop for very long. The dinners, I mean, they had to do away with a lot of the Harvey way, you know, a lot of the nice fancy. (laughs) Yes, all the fancy touches. They had to do away with it because they were serving up to 3,000 soldiers a day that were coming by their Harvey houses. That's a lot. (laughs) It is a lot. Another thing that changed was that the Harvey houses did not just hire white women at this point. They were hiring women of color. It was still a very desirable job to get. It was still a job that many applicants were turned away for, but at least they opened the door to a broader range of women. And in 1946, after the war was over, a gift. (laughs) The MGM studio released a movie called The Harvey Girls, starring a reluctant Judy Garland. (laughs) And the tagline on one of the posters, girls and gals are battling for their men. And I'm like, girls and gals? Okay. (laughs) Which ones are the girls? The Harvey Girls and then the showgirls like Angel Lansbury? Yeah, my guess. So this was based on a book that was published in 1942. And uh, let's see if I can do a 30-second summary. A new Harvey House is opening in a town in the West, and the people who own the saloon and the House of Negotiable Affection are not very happy that their clientele are being distracted by the wholesomeness of the ladies across the street who serve up the steaks and a waltz and a nice cup of tea and the prospect of marriage. (laughs) Hi, Jinx and Sue. And a lot of ballads. (laughs) Uh, I have to tell you, don't let the opening ballad stop you from um, fast forward through it. Frankly, just do it. (laughs) I really like this movie. It was in Technicolor. It's kind of in the grand tradition of Oklahoma. It's almost like a stage play that happens to be a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and you know that the whole time you're not, you don't have any illusion that they're really looking out at the Grand Vista or that they're really on the train traveling, but it's pretty neat to watch. Judy Garland, though, was not in a good place in her mind when she was making this. I think she was late 40, 50 times, didn't show up. But when she did, though, she got these big numbers in one take. So, I mean, you take the good, you take the bad. (laughs) You take the rest in there. You have the facts of life. That is not the song that I expected to be singing at this point. (laughs) So the most famous song from that movie is the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe, which is an unlikely pop song, but nevertheless took a hold of the pop charts. It was so crazy. And I 
was kind of rolling my eyes, like mocking it. Why on earth? But then I remembered, oh, Greece was number one when I was a child, <laughs> followed by Summer Nights, followed by You're the One That I Want. I mean, you know, it yeah. just was the popular music of the movie of the day. So like, who am I to yeah. mock the Harvey Girls movie for that when, in fact, I lived through four times that in my own life. So, <laughs> Well, it's hard to hear that song and not have it stuck in your head. I mean, as I'm writing notes and stuff down, every single time that I had to write Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, I never like said it like that. In my head, it was always, on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. <laughs> okay, so I re- I'm going to, should I sing my little phrase that you swear is not in that song? Well, it's not in the lyrics that I have in front of me. And I listened to a couple versions, but it must be in some version of it in the movie because it's in your head. Yeah. And I, I don't know if I'm going to get the words right, but it's something like, in this day and age, girls don't leave home. But if you get a hankering and want to roam, our advice to you is run away on the Atchison Peak and Santa Fe. I Hi. swear. I, I I don't doubt it. It sounds like it should be in the movie. Oh, I know Lynn manuel Miranda, so I did not make that up. No. <laughs> in my head. But that's the only thing I remember, except for like everybody going, woo, woo, woo. <laughs> So there it is. Angela Lansbury plays the showgirl. She is epic. That's like the, the first time I ever saw her. I, actually, the first time I ever saw her was Murder, She Wrote, because my mom was obsessed with that show. And then <laughs> the second place I ever saw her was this movie on TV. Anyway, I really like it. That song won an Academy Award, and it brought attention to the Harvey Girls again, just at the point in which they were getting ready to fall into oblivion. So it kind of cemented their existence into the historical record. But the 1950s brought airline travel and highway subsidies, along with this new American prosperity that allowed people to buy things like airplane tickets and cars. Major highway projects began to bypass the old railroad hubs, which had depended on road traffic from the back to make up for the train traffic that was not happening from the front. And railroads began to cut passenger service all over America. One by one, the Harvey houses associated with those hubs began to close. I will say they they tried another venture and for a time they operated some restaurants at rest stops on highways outside of Chicago, but it, it just wasn't enough. There are some Harvey hotels that are still open, obviously not run by the Fred Harvey Company. They were sold to Amtrak in the late 1960s. But you can still stay at El Tovar. Hmm. You can still stay at La Posada in Winslow, Arizona. That one was fully restored in the 1990s. And now for 130 bucks a night, you can stay there. And the rooms are very cool. They're very southwest style, very Santa Fe style. Mary Coulter had a heavy hand in creating La Posada. So you can see her still at that hotel. The Castaneda Hotel in Las Vegas, New Mexico, it had been left to deteriorate, but it was bought, refurbished and restored and opened in 2019 as a hotel. So there are, yeah, there still are places that you can stay and kind of absorb some of the um, Fred Harvey mystique. I mean, once you can travel again. (laughs) Right. All right. 
Now it is time for media. And I don't know that anyone who has been listening to this show for any length of time will be surprised, but these first two and the two that I think you should buy, and I would be very surprised if Susan didn't also have these books. The two that I owned already are Appetite for America by Stephen Freed. And The Harvey Girls, Women Who Opened the West by Leslie Poling Kempis. Correct. (laughs) I loved Appetite for America because in the prologue, the title of the prologue, who the hell is Fred Harvey? I was like, (laughs) okay, all right, Stephen, you're my guy. Let's let's read your book. (laughs) Yeah, that was a good one. And the other one really focused more on the Harvey Girls themselves, but you can't really tell the story about the Harvey Girls without talking about Fred. Right. So... As a middle grade book, there's a book called The Harvey Girls, The Women Who Civilized the West by Judy Morris. It has lots of pictures. It's very well written. Uh, It can't go wrong for kids who can read chapter books or adults who like a quick and easy read with photographs. So I thought that one was really good. There is a picture of recent recent subject Shirley Temple as a special guest on the Santa Fe Railroad on the Super Chief's very first run mm-hmm. in 1938. She's super cute. And that picture is in this book. There are several books out there about Harvey houses of different areas. The one that I got my hands on was Fred Harvey Houses of the Southwest by Richard Melzer. And it's just a lot of pictures. And there's one called Harvey Houses of Arizona, Quality from Winslow to the Grand Canyon by Rosa Wolston Latimer. And going even further into the Harvey Company's involvement with Native American art is a book called Inventing the Southwest, the Fred Harvey Company and Native American Art. And this was, I do believe, sold at an exhibition at the Heard Museum. It's by Kathleen Howard and Diana Pardue. Do you have any other? um, I have one compilation. No, but I do have the Harvey House cookbook. Oh, right. I have that, too. (laughs) Well, and I don't really approve of the guacamole recipe, said the end. I bought the Harvey House cookbook with a full intention of making a Harvey House meal for my family. And I never could find a recipe that sounded like something my family would like. But I thought it was really good for the story, the Harvey House story that was written amongst the recipes. So I'm glad I have it. Well, um, my favorite part of that was the the little poem. <laughs> Harvey houses, don't you savvy? Clean across the old Mojave. On the Santa Fe, they strung them like a string of Indian beads. We all couldn't eat without them, but the slickest thing about them is the Harvey skirts that hustle up the feeds. <laughs> there you go. That's my favorite part of this book. <laughs> there's also macaroni pudding a la Parisienne. I mean, there's things I... Yeah, like I said, yeah, like I said, there was, I couldn't narrow down a meal for my family. I guess some of them sounded okay, but they just, I don't know. They just didn't sound like something that I would cook, even though that was like the whole point (laughs) of making something that would be like a Harvey House meal. But anyway, I digress. There was one compilation book that I read that I'm glad I got my hands on. It's called More Than Petticoats, Remarkable Kansas Women by Gina Kaufman. And it's a compilation with a section on the Harvey Girls, as well as other women from Kansas, including our friends, Carrie Nation and Amelia Earhart. And that's your friend, Gina Kaufman. Oh, yes. 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 
I'm like, I know that name. I used to sometimes go down last minute to our local NPR station to be on a show that Gina Kaufman hosted. And they would sometimes do a segment called uh, the podcast. Mm, Can't even remember (laughs) the name of this segment. But um, some of us would go and talk about podcasts and our favorites and what's going on in the world of of that. And um, so I felt happy to have been invited to her show and we established a rapport. So I am very proud of her for her work. Yeah, this is a great book. I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it's a compilation of a bunch of women. There is a book called The Harvey Girls by Samuel Hopkins Adams, which is the book upon which the famous MGM movie was based. So I don't know. Good luck finding it. It's uh, called A Novel of a Southwestern Town in the Early Days of the Santa Fe Railroad and Three Unusual Girls Who Worked for the Fred Harvey System. And actually, good luck finding the movie. I had to pay for it on Prime. It was three bucks. I mean, it was only three bucks. Keep thinking I have it on, uh, it might be Amazon Prime. It was was either Hulu or Amazon Prime. Here's a tip. If you go to justwatch.com and key in your movie that you want to see, Harvey Girls or whatever else, it'll literally tell you where is it streaming? Where can you buy it? Mm Mm-hmm. And where is it included? It's really helped me a lot. Like, is this on Netflix? I don't know. So you look it up and then it tells you. Yeah. But I thought maybe it would be streaming somewhere, you know, and I I pay for a lot of streaming services, but I still had to pay another three bucks to Amazon. Isn't that something else? I like, I wonder when is the streaming service like fracturing going to just be too much for people? Like something I wanted to watch was on Disney Plus and I'm like, nope, guess I'll never see it. Oh, yes. I watch I watch far too much at Disney+. Plus. Well, but Wanda- it, might, it might not be. Oh, it's WandaVision. And I was like, Wanda- yes, Vision. I won't be seeing oh. that. Because oh, it's I'm so, so good. But I've reached the, my straw. I'm all done adding. And I do have Apple TV, but I only have it because I bought a new Apple phone. So I have it for a year for free. So I don't know if I'm going to re-up that. But there are a couple good shows on it, like Dickinson, which is very good. I enjoy it. Well, I'm grumpy about Peacock because The Office got sucked off of Netflix. And I used to keep The Office on heavy rotation, just like in the background. It's almost yeah. like having coworkers, you know, yeah. uh-huh. and, and they would just be talking and you don't have to pay attention. You know what's going to happen. You know, the, st- the stapler is going to be in jello. You don't have to worry about it. But then, nope, they're gone. They're on Peacock now, which I have to figure out if I want. Um, also, okay, one book that is not at all connected necessarily to Fred Harvey, but is intimately connected with the origin of railroads, I think is amazing. It's a Terry Pratchett book called Raising Steam. It's a fiction? It's, oh, well, what is it? Science fiction? Oh, okay. I'm like, Terry Terry Pratchett, that's, yeah, that's not nonfiction. No, it's a Discworld novel, um, and it's all about the evolution, creation and evolution of railroads on Discworld. So fans of Discworld will not want to miss this. I don't know that it's an entry point (laughs) into Discworld. So I guess send me an email if you want uh, like your first book (laughs) to start though. I mean, there's like so many books, but anyway, Raising Steam is all about the creation of railroads. It's pretty interesting. And just like in the real world, all the steam engines blew up and left pink steam. That's all I'm saying about that. (laughs) (laughs) He's a student of history and he 
knew a lot about a lot of different things. And he brought to bear his extensive knowledge of railroad history in this book. And I really want to recommend it. So there it is. There are several Harvey House museums uh, across the Western United States. They are all closed right now because of COVID, obviously. But the Harvey House Museum in Bellin has a lot on its website, has a lot on its website to look at. So I always like a good virtual tour and things to look at. This Harvey House is actually a part of a library system, which mm-hmm. made particularly excited. And they had a paper doll printout that I didn't do, but uh, they also had a 20-minute virtual tour, which I thought was really great. Also in Leavenworth, Kansas, the National Harvey House Museum, it is currently being restored as it has been for the last 10 years. Oh, geez. I know, it's but it's the Harvey House Mansion, which is why I'm so excited about it. According to their website, you can have prearranged tours now, maybe? You have to contact them first. Well, that's within striking distance of here. Yep. Hmm. And there's the one in Florence, Kansas, which was the second Harvey House to open, uh, the first to offer beds. And there's some things to look at that online since we can't go anywhere. I would just like to tell you that I hereby challenge you again to find my picture that I took (laughs) um, many years ago of that Harvey House in Florence, yeah. It's on it had, Instagram? It's on Instagram. It had, as far as I looked the last time, it had seven likes. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the very first things we ever posted, I think, when nobody knew we had an Instagram. So it's there. I've been there. I have made my poor husband stand outside of there and wait for me to look through all the windows. So You can actually stay at one. You can stay at La Posada in Winslow, Arizona. It's a resort. I do think they're open now, but... I, you know, COVID, everything. I'm telling you not to travel. That's all I'm going to say about that. The Panhandle Railroad Museum in my country grandma's town of Wellington, Kansas, includes a railroad station and Harvey House made of wheat. (laughs) So we will provide you with a link to observe that. I can't top that with anything that I have left over. (laughs) I have a link to the judyroom.com, which is kind of a day-to-day for Judy Garland on the set of the Harvey Girls. I also online have an article with a New Mexico tour itinerary. Um, the post is called In Harvey Heaven. So it's heavily, you know, related to that. I have also a timeline of Fred Harvey jewelry. And don't forget what's on the menu. There is a giant collection of menus that the New York Public Library acquired and then crowdsourced to digitize. And I was a part of that project. And there are a lot of Harvey House menus there to look at over the years. So it's pretty cool. I have a total non sequitur, but I don't know when we are going to be able to talk about this. So I'm just going to direct you to it right now. I was looking for pictures of Harvey Girl uniforms and I stumbled across the Bada Shoe Museum in Toronto, Canada. <laughs> they have 13,000 shoes and artifacts. There's a lot of photographs. The building is stunning. I started to make an Airbnb board for Toronto after looking at this. So cool. Yeah. Let's go to Toronto to the shoe museum. The shoe museum, Beckett. If there was ever a museum that was made for you. Well, someday, someday they will let us back in. <laughs> So 
there is an article about Smith and McNell's restaurant at Restauranting Throughout History. That is also very interesting. I love a little restaurant history. And then don't miss, of course, MGM's giant blockbuster, The Harvey Girls, on whatever streaming service you can get a hold of, or it uh, looks like Amazon Prime right now for a fee. Yep. But you know what? Here's a fee that I paid happily on Vimeo. It was five bucks. It was a documentary called Harvey Girls Opportunity Bound. It was filmed in 2014, but there are actual interviews with former Harvey Girls at a symposium for Harvey Girls that was being held back then. So you can actually hear from real Harvey Girls talking about their experiences and what it led to in their lives and what it meant to them. It was, I thought it was a well spent five bucks on Vimeo. And if you love it and are um, wanting to get a copy for yourself, Amazon actually sells DVDs of this movie. I think it's like $16. If you have some place to play them. <laughs> I know. I'm still bummed that I got a year in Provence. A&E, a year in Provence. Is anybody with me? I loved that series so much. And I don't know why I just clicked it. What did I think was coming? <laughs> I, I don't know. DVDs came and I held them up like, uh, I'm like looking around. This is recent. Oh, this is like two weeks ago. <laughs> what? I don't. What did I think was coming? Like a fairy to wave it and show it in like my head. I don't. What did I think? But I just opened the package and went, huh. I just have mental deterioration at home. I don't know what's wrong with me. I want to say I'm laughing with you, but <laughs> no, I'm not. That's really funny. That's really funny. You need to go visit the uh, shoe museum to just give your brain a real, little rest. A day of day drinking and shoe museuming. Ooh, all right. Okay, so also, okay, before we leave, I don't want to diss the Harvey House cookbook so thoroughly. I'm going to find something in here that oh, okay. is good because we were really dismissive and I don't think that was very fair. <laughs> um, hmm. Let me just say a couple more things about it. I, I don't know. This all might be dismissive too. I don't know. <laughs> so there is a concerning recipe for jellied chicken that has two ingredients. Three, I guess, ingredients. Chicken with feet, it says. Salt and pepper. Yeah, it's <laughs> concernicus. Okay, so there's that with jelly. It makes its own jelly in the process. There is a uh, epic recipe for wild Canadian goose. Should you ever... I mean, it's serious. And, you know, goose used to be served at major holidays. So this is kind of cool that that's a recipe for that. There's recipes for rabbit and other kinds of game. Um <laughs> I just don't. I just don't know. Here I am going to do it again, man. I don't know. Um, hmm. Okay. Well, I thought I was going to say something awesome, but their recipe for hot Mexican bean dips first ingredients is pork and beans. So I just don't know, man. I, yeah. But if you want to have like an authentic Harvey House meal, it's the cookbook for you. And I don't think it was horribly expensive and it looks cute on your shelves. <laughs> if you're a cookbook collector, that's the nicest thing I can say. And that's about it for our coverage of the Harvey Girls and Fred Harvey and the history of dining along the railroads in America. And in closing, 
Well, Fred Harvey did change dining and created a chain of restaurants that set standards for the service industry. The Harvey girls, just young women who were looking for adventure and a job, they became icons of polite, efficient service and in the process, help establish societies in the American West. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, help us spread the word and tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Banter with Susan on Twitter at The History Chicks with an X or find our delightful Pinterest boards. There is one for almost every episode and I am just about to click go live on the one for the Harvey Girls. The song in the middle is a remix of the famous Claire de Lune by Oostaz, and the song at the end is My Town by The Bell Hours. I found my voice in different towns Oh, one word with different sounds I show my face and move Why?